Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with Carrie Ann Bergen. Carrie Ann is an assistant professor at Brown University. Carrie Ann, welcome to the Twimble AI podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I am looking forward to diving into our conversation. You have roles in both data science and earth sciences at Brown, and we'll be talking about that and more. But to get us started, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the confluence of those two fields. Yeah. So I actually am back at Brown. I was an undergraduate here a few years ago, (laughs) and I studied applied math and physics. And at the time I was studying applied math because I thought I really liked math and, you know, in high school and I had taken computer science and I really liked these kind of topics. And I thought math is really useful. So it'll be fine. It's a great thing to study. But I'd never heard the term data science. Like I didn't know that it existed. I just was like, math is useful. It's everywhere. (laughs) Um, So I studied applied math. And then I graduated and went to work at MIT Lincoln Laboratory, which is a federally funded research and development center outside of Boston. Mm-hmm. And there I was doing, essentially, I came in, I had an applied math degree. And they were like, have you ever heard of any of these neural networks support vector machine? And I had because I'd taken an applied statistics course that covered these things. And so they gave me this sort of applied machine learning project, nice. trying to look at data from different sensors and try to determine if um, there had been a, a bio agent release or this, this kind of thing using sensor data. And the job title that I had was software engineer, but I was like, this doesn't feel like software engineering. I'm kind of prototyping analysis and algorithms in MATLAB. And so then I decided to go back to school after that. I'd never considered doing a PhD, but I wanted to do kind of an interdisciplinary, more application-focused or sort of engineering-oriented applied math kind of program. So I went to Stanford. And then once I got to Stanford, I started to hear about data science everywhere. <laughs> And I originally thought I was going to do more of like a, I was in the program that's called computational and mathematical engineering. So that's kind of traditionally has been more like scientific computing and computational sciences, but there was a big shift toward data science. So I went to Stanford, everyone's talking about data science. If you're doing applied and computational mathematics, you know, the natural place to apply that is in data science and machine learning. So I ended up kind of moving more in that direction than I had anticipated. Again, I'd never heard of like big data, data science until I went over to Stanford. And then it was sort of everywhere. And while I was at Stanford, I got interested in doing these more applied problems, because I do think it's a really interesting way to find challenging data science problems is to go talk to scientists or other people who have data and don't know what to do with it. They have a problem they want to solve, but they don't quite know how to get the solution. And, And so just by sort of chance, I mentioned that as an undergrad, I had taken a handful of earth science courses, and I thought they were interesting. But I didn't really see the connection between earth sciences and the kind of mathematics and computing. But I mentioned this to a professor, and she introduced me to a seismologist who had a lot of data. And so we started collaborating on this project that ended up becoming my PhD thesis about trying to detect really small earthquakes in really long duration waveform recordings from seismometers, which are the sensors that measure vibrations of the earth. So I'm trying to pick out really, really small earthquakes. So that kind of got me into this field at the intersection of data science and geophysics. I sort of continued on in a postdoc position and ended up applying to faculty positions and ended up back at Brown, where I was hired by the Data Science Initiative, which is one of these kind of 
interdisciplinary homes for data science at Brown with a joint appointment in Earth Environmental and Planetary Sciences, which is different department than the one I was in here as an undergrad, but it was kind of fun to come back. <laughs> My opinion is Brown undergraduates are the most fun and greatest undergraduates in the world, the best ones to work with. So I was excited to come back and teach them and work with them again. <laughs> I was excited to come back to Brown. I also have a courtesy appointment in computer science, so I hopefully will be able to start working with some computer science students as well. I just started this year, so I'm, I'm still new, new to Brown, but yeah, it's fun to be back. <laughs> Fantastic. Do you anticipate continuing on? Well, I, I guess you're partially appointed in Earth and Environmental Sciences, so you're going to continue on with research, building on your dissertation. Is that the idea? Yeah, so there's definitely one aspect of the research that I'm going to continue to do is I have some collaborations that are hopefully, it's a little tricky during the pandemic to keep these collaborations with scientists going and kick off new ones. Mm-hmm. It's a new assistant professor who started during and transitioned institutions during this time, but hopefully to continue collaborating with people who are doing earthquake science. I have a current project I'm working on where I'm trying to work on a similar problem, which is also this kind of waveform classification and classifying the data that are recorded by seismograms, but trying to do so in a way that's a little more interpretable. So so I do have interest in those kind of projects and, and general sort of signal processing, event detection and sensor networks are problems that I worked on. Actually, that's what I was doing also at Lincoln Laboratory was a problem that was detecting sort of rare events in a sensor network. I'm doing kind of the same with, with earthquakes. So that's a, an area of interest, but also moving more towards looking at other kinds of applications and thinking more about you know, how do we do machine learning sort of in the right way in the sciences and developing tools that are specifically designed for scientists, as opposed to kind of taking techniques from industry and adapting them, which is what I did during my PhD. We were using these kind of audio processing techniques, applying it to seismic data. And sometimes that works, but sometimes scientists need tools that are specifically designed with their sort of domain expertise, mm. knowledge of the sort of underlying domain knowledge, the physics and all of that as well. So there's, there's a lot of, I think, needs that scientists have that are not necessarily being addressed by the some of the research that's going on that's more industry focused in many cases. Got it. Digging into the work that you did on the dissertation, you mentioned you were applying audio techniques or techniques from audio processing. Were they machine learning techniques or traditional audio processing techniques or a mixture? Yeah, so it's kind of a, a mixture. So we were doing trying to detect these signals from these weak earthquakes in a sort of unsupervised way. So in a lot of earth science applications, I think sciences in general, it's common to have really big data sets, but you don't always have like labels for them or a very good set of labels. Mm-hmm. And especially if your goal is to find something new, then you know the label data you have may not be helpful for finding and discovering new things in the data. So we wanted to develop something that would be able to discover new earthquake signals in these continuous data sets without having to have a lot of labeled data. And this is continues to be a need in this field because labeled data is something that people often don't have. And so we were using more of a data mining approach. So we were trying to look for repeating patterns in the data as a way of picking out earthquake signals because earthquakes often repeat. Mm-hmm. When I started the project, I didn't realize the seismograms, you see, if you've ever seen one, they like look at these kind of wiggles. And to me, I thought they just were really like random. I didn't know <laughs> that there was a lot of information that sort of in there. But if you have two earthquakes that are roughly the same location and they're recorded by the same instrument, then the wiggles that are recorded for that, they look almost identical. And so you can use that as a way to pick out earthquakes. If you know what one of the signals looks like, you can essentially use that as a sort of template 
and find other events that were at roughly the same location. And so that's called template matching. And that's a commonly used approach in that field. So we were trying to do template matching without templates, sort of template discovery by looking for these kind of repeating signals. Got it. So we were using techniques that you would use for like audio retrieval because the waveform data we have in seismology, the sort of best or most similar kind of data that's out there that there's been a lot of tools for is audio. There's obviously some differences between the two types. Okay. But sort of searching large audio data sets for repeating segments is something that there were techniques. So we were using, in particular, locality sensitive hashing was the technique we were using to kind of cluster and find, do kind of a near neighbor search to find similar waveforms. Mm -hmm. And then another piece of it is, then a piece that's different from audio is then what do you do when you have multiple sensors at different locations? And so that was a big focus of my work. And so that's, again, under the hood, there was some sort of machine learning going on, like some basic, some clustering, these kinds of things. But it was kind of an interesting project just because it it was really combining a lot of different tools and really, it was very, very, you know, multidisciplinary and really fun. Mm -hmm. We had a team of people from, I was sort of the data science person. We had some seismologists involved. We had some computer scientists involved as well. So we had people from, you know, three different academic units all involved in the project. So that was good and fun. Awesome. Well, when you mentioned that the signal, if you record two seismic events from the same location, the signals will be identical. Is the implication that the if you're in a different location, that the signals won't be identical? And, you know, that kind of speaks to me to some of the challenges of using machine learning might be that you can train a model, but it's very location specific and doesn't necessarily generalize to other locations. Is that one of the things you see? Yeah. Well, for this particular approach, it is true that, so the reason why you would see similar signals that are coming from events that have the sort of same or close nearby sources and then recorded at the same location is that the, essentially the, the source is the same in that case, because you have sort of slip along fault at roughly the same location. Then you have the seismic waves are traveling the same path and then they're recorded at the same location. So everything's kind of the same, all of these pieces that contribute to what the waveform looks like. But if you have a different location. I thought you were referring to multiple earthquakes, you know, separated by time, captured from the same location. Oh, yeah, they are. But if they, they might be having a, the same location along the fault. So, got it. They could be separated by minutes, years. The amount of time could be pretty much any amount of time. Mm-hmm. We were processing data sets up to 10 years. Oh, wow. So, up to 10 years apart in time, we would look for those, but it, they would have to be roughly at the same location and recorded at the same instrument. Mm-hmm. But in terms of generalization, now they're actually in the last, I would say about three years, which is around the time I finished up my PhD, there has been a shift toward using supervised approaches for this. Mm-hmm. And there are general characteristics of earthquakes. So you have the sort of initial wave arrival, which is called a P wave. And then you have another sort of major arrival called an S wave. You have all these different, they call them seismic phases. And so you can see these, they have some patterns in the data that seismologists can learn to identify them by looking at the waveform data. They can look at some of these seismic recordings and they can say, okay, that's a P wave, that's an S wave and and all that. So you can also train a machine learning model to do this if you have a large labeled data set, which that's something that as a student, I was frustrated by because there weren't these large labeled data sets in this field. And I kept saying, you know, if we want to use supervised learning, then we are going to have to put together this kind of data set. And so a few years ago, there there was sort of a push for that to happen. And now there are some 
of these data sets. And so there has been a movement towards supervised learning and it does work fairly well. And they do tend to generalize well from different locations because you do have these kind of general like P wave and S waves mm-hmm. patterns that can train a seismologist to pick them out. So <laughs> training a machine learning algorithm is it's very feasible to do. But it only this only works for the kind of earthquakes that we have a lot of examples of in the catalog. So more conventional earthquakes, there's still a lot of demand for these more unsupervised or kind of data limited methods for other kinds of events. So there's, you know, lots of different kinds of seismic events that people are interested in. Um, There's things like tremor, which is another kind of sort of seismic event. People also study environmental events, like they'll study ice quakes or landslides or, you know, avalanches, these kind of things. And there's also a seismometer on Mars. So if you're trying to, you know, the... (laughs) You can train a model to detect earthquakes on Earth, but if you try to apply it to Mars, like all bets are off. And there's that's a case where you don't have a lot of examples. You don't really know what you're you're gonna find. There has been this movement towards supervised learning, but it's only for those cases where you can put together a large labeled data set. It does work well for those problems. Do we call them earthquakes if they're on Mars? You would call them probably Marsquake, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't I haven't looked too much at the I've seen some of the data for it, but when I look at it, it doesn't look like anything to me. I've sort of learned, I have done my sort of human machine learning and learned how to identify sort of PNS waves and pick out earthquakes. But if I look at the Martian ones, it doesn't look like anything to me, which is why I don't think machine learning would be able to pick them out either if they were trained on Earth. Yeah. I assume. I don't I don't know. And so you mentioned that an as, an element of your project was trying to incorporate data from multiple locations. Yeah. So what I was trying to do is one of the challenges with the, our approach of trying to look for repeating signals is that other things can generate repeating signals. Like if you have a, the same like truck that drives past the sensor every day, then you may get a repeating signal from that. And so there's kind of two places where you can try to suppress those kinds of false detections. And one of them is kind of on the front end. You can try to choose features where you're not going to see, you know, maybe that's like not in the right frequency range or something that don't look like earthquakes. But you also can try to do it on kind of the output side and say, like, which of these signals are consistent with with being an earthquake. And one thing that you can try to do is use machine learning to classify those. But actually, what works best is to look at the physics and say, are we seeing something that's consistent with a single event where you have a waveform propagating in space and you're it's being recorded on different sensors in a way that's consistent with a shared event? And so that's a problem that generally when you do detection in this field, you first pick out what you think are earthquakes, and then you look at different sensors and say, are we seeing the same event? But uh, waveforms, they arrive at different stations at different times because they, they travel, they like don't travel instantly. Mm-hmm. So they hit the stations different times. So you actually have to try to make sense of this and like, are they, these arrivals we're observing at different locations consistent with a shared event? And that problem is something that they call phase association in this field. And so for our particular detector, one of the parts of the project that I worked on or spent a lot of time on was trying to come up with a method to do that for multiple stations for our particular approach. And it turns out that because we're doing our detections, we're identifying similar events. There's an invariant quantity we can use to that we see across the network that we can identify and pull them out. So the problem just actually sort of reduces to the problem of finding these kind of patterns in a giant sparse matrix, which was the output of our detector. So kind of doing this like clustering, finding these kind of specific cluster shapes and patterns in this matrix. And that technique or you mentioned location invariant hashing, is that what you called it? Locality sensitive hashing is a technique from like theoretical computer science for finding, for doing like fast near neighbor search. Okay. Okay. 
And so that's the, the what we use to pick out the waveforms that are similar to each other. Mm-hmm. And then once we do that for each of the instruments in our network, then we have to ask the question of like, which of these pairs of events that we are seeing do we believe are real and that we're seeing at multiple stations? Because if we see it at multiple stations and we think it's probably not just like a truck driving by one station or some other, some sort of nuisance signal, we think it's really an earthquake if it's consistent with being observed over a larger spatial area. Mm-hmm. Is it a technique that an analyst or someone could apply or would apply to the data to help them make sense of it? Or does it feed into some machinery that you like a classifier that ultimately says this was an earthquake, this wasn't an earthquake? Yeah, so our approach is essentially trying to just detect the signals. So usually if the processing steps What a seismologist would ultimately want would be to get a catalog of events. And so what they would usually do is take the events that are seen on multiple stations. They would try to then use, look at, identify the specific arrival times at each station of the P and S waves, so these different phases, and then use that to try to locate where the event is. And if you can sort of locate the event, that's when it's usually kind of put in a catalog and you could also characterize it, like how big was the event? What was the magnitude? You know, maybe information about the source and so on. So that's kind of what the next steps would be to locate and characterize the event and then put it in a catalog. And these catalogs are used by, this is sort of the starting point of a lot of research in geophysics and earthquake sciences. You know, they want to have good catalogs of earthquakes so that they can then look for patterns or draw conclusions based on when and where they're seeing earthquakes and these kinds of things. I don't know as much about the earthquake science, but, you know, the people who are sort of trying to study like the physics of earthquakes and these kind of things, they need to know where and when earthquakes happen. So on my end, I'm trying to like help create that sort of data product for the scientists. And how would you characterize kind of where we are broadly with the application of machine learning to the the field? Well, this particular problem of identifying earthquakes and seismological events and more broadly to earth sciences. Yeah. So this particular problem of doing, you know, the sort of waveform classification, this kind of seismic data analysis, it's really on kind of the the front end of getting these catalogs. This is one of the problems that's it's been studied for a long time. And it's also one of the areas I think within geophysics, where there's been a lot more focus on applying machine learning, because it's a problem that seems, you know, really well suited to machine learning, like you have all this data, you have some catalogs for some kinds of events, and you want to be able to to do better to find, uh, do a better job of picking out the earthquakes, identifying when the arrivals are getting the smallest events that we can and so on. And so that area, I think there has been a lot of work on it. And I think it's actually starting to get incorporated into some of the like real-time processing. So the tools that I was developing was more for researchers. So it was more geared towards like batch processing of large quantities of archive data. So we would apply it to like the last 10 years of data recorded in a particular region or set of stations. But there's also people who are like the US Geological Survey that are doing this kind of real-time catalog generation. So we were trying to develop, you know, more detailed catalogs for researchers, but there also is an interest in like, well, if we could just incorporate it into these kind of systems that are already generating the catalogs, then, and have better catalogs in the first place, I think that's an area where there is a lot of interest in including machine learning. One of the challenges there is just, you know, the USGS is is public-facing, right? So I think they're a little more risk-averse in terms of like what, how many you know, false positives can you put or how accurate you need it to be as opposed to yeah. the catalogs researchers are working with. They want to find everything they possibly can and then worry about later kind of some of these other issues about like the data quality or these these kind of things. So got it. Got it. 
And so from your introduction, it sounds like your experience applying machine learning to this particular field of seismology kind of informs some some thoughts on kind of machine learning in general as applied to to the sciences. How do you think we're doing there? Yeah. So actually, when I finished up this project, one of the things that I did was, as I was writing up my thesis, I like had all these kind of thoughts about like, well, how could machine learning, how could scientists better incorporate machine learning? And I sort of wrote this up and it, we ended up publishing like a review paper that include these kind of suggestions for the scientific community. But at the same time, I was kind of thinking about as a data scientist, like what do I see is, is sort of missing here? And I think right now there's a lot of focus like among scientists, there's a lot of interest in using machine learning. But for scientists, machine learning is just a set of tools that they don't necessarily, I mean, some of the younger scientists are really keen to learn more computer science, to learn the data science techniques. But a lot of people are just sort of like, give me this neural network, I'll just apply it to my data, get some results, and then move on. They're really motivated by the scientific questions and not necessarily thinking about like, how do I modify this technique to get it to work better? Or is this technique well suited to the problem? Or how could I incorporate domain knowledge better into this model? It's not the focus of their work. They're just, they want a, a set of tools that they can kind of grab and go. And on the, I think, computer science side, a lot of the research there is, is driven by the needs of industry and certain kinds of data like text or images and, and these kinds of data sets, which often look different than the data sets that scientists have. And often there's sort of different assumptions about the needs and and just the interest of scientists, I think, is often a little bit different. You know, things like knowing how confident they can be in their predictions, being able to interpret models and understand what's going on under the hood is something that's really important for scientists, being able to use whatever machine learning models they have to then discover something new about science is really the the ultimate sort of focus. And so I think there's not a lot as many people who are in this kind of in-between space. There's kind of the scientists who are using machine learning tools, but not focused too much on developing new tools. And then you have computer scientists who they might be interested in applying their tools to scientific data, but not necessarily really digging into like learning more about the domain in order to make really like tailored tools for the scientists. And so I sort of think of it as a little bit of an analogy with like computational biology. You have this field where you have people who are essentially sort of trained as computer scientists, but they really learn a lot of the biology. Mm -hmm. And then they're able to develop tools specifically for working with biological data, for solving computational problems in biology. And I think for earth scientists and for some of other the other physical sciences, we don't really have that notion of this as kind of a distinct discipline that we're training students in and have as its kind of own research field. And so that's what I'm kind of hoping to work in that space and to try to build up and train students to work in that area. But it's kind of a new and, and growing area. And, you know, fields like computational biology took time to sort of grow and develop. Yeah. Neurosciences, I think we're a little behind, but there are some areas I see a lot of work in like climate science, where I think they're really far ahead. There's a lot of people who've been doing climate modeling. I think they're really computer savvy over there. And like a lot of them are, are keen to adopt machine learning. Geophysics is also a very sort of, I would say geophysics is full of data scientists from before we were calling them data scientists. Like, right. They have always had a lot of data, a lot of very high demand for computational solutions for analyzing big data sets. But the focus hasn't always been on looking to sort of modern tools from computer science. A lot of it is sort of brute forcing things, like just throwing a lot of compute at the problem and not thinking about how to carefully design the algorithms or really digging into the, the different statistical or sort of computational 
methods as much. There's always people in every field who who have these interests. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not like the first person who's ever ever been at this intersection, but <laughs> I think it's an area. There's a lot of growing interest. I hear from a lot of young scientists, early career folks who are interested in going into this area, and so it's an area that I'm hoping to develop more in my research, rather than kind of focusing on like this one particular problem of picking out earthquake signals. Yeah. Which is an interesting problem, but I think there's a lot more that we could do in this intersection, especially developing new tools. Like, I think that's kind of the most fun. And do you have a, a sense for the direction that, that that goes or specific tools that you think are needed? And maybe more broadly, are how domain specific are the new tools? Do you, do you think there's an opportunity to create ML tools broadly for scientists or does that run the risk of kind of the same problem that you're trying to solve and in, in which the tools aren't specific enough? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question, right? Because there is this sort of trade-off, like the more kind of general purpose a tool you make, like the more different problems you can apply it to and get like decent solutions. But then for any given problem, it's probably not going to be the best possible solution. So I think, but there are kinds of data, like I've been working with these seismic signals and there aren't as many tools out there, for instance, for doing time series and signals. Like a lot of it is coming from like the audio processing community and some things that you you know use for other kinds of sequential data, like text you could apply to this these kinds of data, but maybe it's not as natural to do it. Mm-hmm. And so you can think about, there is for just general tools for signals and time series, more work in that area. So that's kind of a more general area that, that people could contribute in. But at the same time, then it, you know, it's not specific to these kinds of specific like earthquakes and the seismic networks and all that. So there is, I guess there's kind of a trade-off that where you can risk getting too far in either direction, I guess, making something too general. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping to kind of be in that space of thinking, like when I'm thinking about stuff, even if I'm applying it to seismic data, I try to think like, could this be applied more generally to other kinds of signals or time series? And that's often when I read papers, I think like, is this a method? Like, could we adapt this to work for it's designed for images or for other kinds of sequential data? Like, would this work for signal processing? Would it work for time series analysis? Because mm-hmm. those are kinds of data you see a lot or sensor networks of other sorts, right? There's a lot of different time series where you have multiple sort of sources where you're recording them, multiple sensor locations. And so a lot of times the relationship, the sort of spatial relationship between those may be different in different applications, but I think there's still potentially insight from one problem that could be applied to the other. So I don't know, I don't really have a a good answer to that problem. Like it is, it's a spectrum. It just depends. Like you could get really specific to a particular problem or or too general so that you're not solving anyone's problem. As a new faculty with a new lab charting a a direction through questions like that, how do you approach them? Where do you start? Yeah, that's a good question. So I've been trying to, I have some sort of areas that I'm interested in where I think there are contributions that we could make for kind of, I try to think like, could this, is this seem like something that could help our scientists in general, but not always for a specific task. Although I often apply it to seismic data and then kind of, you know, show it to my seismology colleagues because it's uh, uh, fun to, to talk to them about these things. Mm-hmm. But for instance, like right now, I've, there's some of the areas that I think are really useful for scientists. One is like this, getting back to this problem of like, well, how do you do learning when you don't have very many labeled examples? And for the method I developed as a, as a PhD student, we sort of assumed you had no knowledge or no uh, examples. And then you had to sort of bake some domain knowledge into your solution. But there's also, you know, you could also do like semi-supervised techniques. There's a lot of techniques using, you know, some labels. 
and also using domain knowledge. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there in different scientific areas. One area that I'm interested in recently is looking at sort of interpretability and kind of explainable AI methods, because I think now that a lot of uh, geoscientists are throwing deep learning models at their solutions, you hear a lot of people talking about like, well, how do we, this is a black box. I don't like that it's a black box. Because scientists, they don't like black boxes. And the goal, if your goal is ultimately just discover something new, then just having some kind of a black box solution where you feed in an input and output something isn't very satisfying to scientists. So having tools that they can use to better interpret the models, one to just, if one case maybe to understand the representations the model is learning, because that itself may be the thing that we don't know. Like we don't know how to model something. We can train a neural network to model it. And now we want to understand like what did it actually learn? And the other case, and this is more for the kind of routine seismic processing example is you may want to be able to interpret the model to make sure that it's doing something that makes sense, right? You want to be able to trust that your model is making predictions that you're willing to trust and that you think are are correct, especially when you start some of these seismic applications. Earthquakes are natural hazards. And so there's a lot of ways in which these the decisions that your machine learning algorithm is making starts to get close to kind of making decisions that relate to, you know, public messaging or putting out warnings about Mm -hmm. things to the public. And so then you really want to have confidence in what your solutions are doing. And also for those applications, you do have a lot of, you do have some cases in which analysts are looking at the data and actually reviewing all of the earthquakes and events that are coming in. And so you also want tools that are going to help them understand what's going on, you know, where they should focus their attention so that they're, you know, when they have to like review all of this, it's it's a lot of data to manually process. We have tools to automate it, but then you need something to kind of bridge that and help point them to like, what are the strange cases? What are the cases where the model isn't really sure? Or how can we sort of combine both the analyst's expertise and the modeling? So there's a lot of different places where I think there's work to be done for this particular problem, but also just as kind of a general set of tools, being able to interpret machine learning models is going to be useful for scientists. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's an area I'm kind of been focusing on recently and excited about. Awesome. Awesome. When you're out talking to scientists that are familiar with machine learning in the sense that they know it's it's something that could potentially help them, but not necessarily trained in machine learning, what are the questions that you get most frequently? I think it's different like five years ago than it is now. I think now a lot more scientists are like generally familiar with machine learning. Whereas when I first started working on this stuff or even I would say as recently as like four or five years ago, there were a lot of people who were just like, what is machine learning? I don't quite know yeah. what it even is. I think now the questions I actually get the most when I talk to people, I mean, sometimes they're like, does this make sense for my data set? And they kind of, you know, tell you about their problem. And usually they don't have enough labeled examples. They're like, is 20 enough? And <laughs> those kind of things. <laughs> but the other thing, the, the big question is, is often, how do we teach this to our students? Like what skills do our students need? What classes should we be requiring? What statistical skills or computing skills should we be teaching them so that they can like learn to do this? Or even they decide to leave academia and go into a job in industry. Like how do we train them so that they they learn the data science skills? Because it's not something that's incorporated into sort of, at least at the undergraduate level in most universities, into like a, a geology major or like environmental science type major. These kinds of programs, the students aren't necessarily learning these skills, but I think there's growing recognition that it's computing and data science are important in these fields and that students need to be learning it. So that's actually, I think, the most common question recently that I get is just, what should we be teaching our students? How do we train them to do this? 
Mm-hmm. And how do you tend to answer that? Is it just yes, <laughs> train them in this stuff or? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I tend to say, you know, I think students should, my opinion, if it were up to me, I would have all undergraduates take a statistics class in a linear algebra course and then learn like Python or something. Yeah. But I think it's still something where for a lot of science majors, those kinds of courses, like they still have to take calculus. Um, and maybe there's a statistics requirement, but they often don't have to take any computing necessarily. A lot of the students are learning these skills, but they're learning them informally. Like they'll do a research project with a faculty and they'll kind of pick up how to do some like MATLAB coding or R, whatever language is being used in the lab. They're kind of picking it up as they go. And I think some of the students are missing this. And especially also the, the formal math training, like they see it in their physics courses. They'll see a little bit of linear algebra and they'll see a little bit of statistics that come up in in their other science courses, but they're not getting the sort of level of training that I think they need to really dig into some of these machine learning techniques. Like they're learning how to enough to be able to, they could probably run a package like scikit-learn on their data. And I teach the students in my class how to use it. But if they really want to start then developing new tools that are tailored to their specific application, that are incorporating domain knowledge into it a little bit more rather than using a tool out of the box, then they really need that mathematical background. And that's something that I think Some of the students who are sort of keen on that are getting, like they're learning it on their own, they're signing up for those courses, but it's not something that's kind of standard in these fields yet. Well, Karian, thank you so much for joining us to share a little bit about what you're working on. Best of luck with your new lab and looking forward to seeing lots of great stuff come from you and your team. All right. Yeah, thank you so much. It was nice talking to you. Great. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.